you are Lord, you are King. Enlil, you are Lord, you are King. Lord who makes flax grow, Lord who makes barley grow. You are Lord of heaven, Lord of plenty, Lord of the earth. You are Lord of the earth, Lord plenty, Lord of heaven. You're listening to The Drumbeat Forever After. It's a podcast about the Bronze Age in West Asia. I'm your host, Alex. This is my guest. Hi, my name is Stacy. And today's episode is about Nippur, the so-called religious capital of Mesopotamia. We're going to focus on the Farah period, or the 2500s or so. The myth we're reading today is called Enlil and Ninlil. They are the patron god and goddess of the city, the god of kingship, and his wife. So this myth starts by introducing Nippur. Its very name is Nibru, as well as the city's rivers and canals. There was a city. There was a city, the one we live in. Nibru was the city, the one we live in. Eid-Sala is its holy river. Enlil was one of its young men, and Ninlil was one of its young women. Nunbar Shegunu was one of its wise old women. At that time, the maiden was advised by her own mother. Ninlil was advised by Nunbar Shegunu. The river is holy, woman. The river is holy. Don't bathe in it. Ninlil, don't walk along the bank of the canal. His eye is bright, the Lord's eye is bright. He will look at you. The great mountain father, Enlil, the shepherd who decides all destinies, his eye is bright, he will look at you. Straight away he will want to have intercourse. He will want to kiss. He will be happy to pour lusty semen into the womb, and then he will leave you to it. She advised her from the heart. She gave wisdom to her. But Ninlil ignores her mother's advice. The river is holy. The woman bathed in the holy river. As Ninlil walked along the bank of the canal, his eye was bright. The Lord's eye was bright. He looked at her. The great mountain, Father Enlil, the shepherd who decides all destinies. His eye was bright. He looked at her. The king said to her, I want to have sex with you. But he could not make her let him. Enlil said to her, I want to kiss you. But he could not make her let him. So Ninlil says, My vagina is small. It does not know pregnancy. My lips are young. They do not know kissing. If my mother learns of it, she will slap my hand. If my father learns of it, he will lay his hands on me. But right now, no one will stop me from telling this to my girlfriend. It's not really clear in the context of the story whether this is consensual or not. Like, you know, the phrase, he could not make her let him, really leaves that up to interpretation. But um, it's interesting that she doesn't want her parents to find out about this. So it's interesting that she's threatening that kind of reputational damage to him by telling him that she's going to tell her friend about this even though she doesn't want her parents to find out. One of the proverbs in the instructions of Shurupak was don't rape anyone's daughter because it will ruin your reputation, basically. Well, that's just because it's a patriarchal society. It's just funny to rape anyone's daughter because you're, you know, you're your father's property first. No, exactly. Conceived of as an injury against her father. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ancient times, what are you going to do? The thing that really stood out to me is that she says her mother, if her mom hears about it, she'll slap her. But if my father learns of it, he'll lay his hands on me. Right. And I'm just wondering to what exactly that means. So if mom's going to slap you around, does that mean, like, dad's going to try to kill you? Or I've said something like, you know, rapey in there? That's what I was trying to figure out. Right. No, yeah. I guess I just kind of assumed that that was just, like, some modern translator's euphemistic way to say my dad's going to, like, hit me. Yeah, but, that's true. But um, see, why would he say it? But see, I just find that interesting, though, because, like... The mom already said slap her. Yeah, no, I don't know. Like, that's um, a question I can't answer because I don't know Sumerian. Well, we could go lay our hands upon the translator and find out. 
<laughs> exactly. <laughs> Enlil spoke to his minister, Nuska. Nuska, my minister. At your service, what do you wish? Master Builder of the Occur. At your service, Lord. Has anyone had intercourse with, has anyone kissed a maiden so beautiful, so radiant? Then will, so beautiful, so radiant? The answer is presumably no. That is, she's presumably a virgin. So Enlil's minister helped set him up with Enlil. The minister brought his master across by boat, bringing him over with the rope of a small boat, bringing him over in a big boat. He grasped hold of her whom he was seeking. He was actually to have intercourse with her. He was actually to kiss her, so as to lie with her on a small bank. He actually had intercourse with her. He actually kissed her. At this one intercourse, at this one kissing, he poured the seed of Suen Ashimbabar into her womb. In other words, they have sex and they conceive in Nana, the moon god of Ur, also known as Sin or Suen or Ashimbabar. Because of this, Enlil is now ritually impure. So they were having sex on the sacred river. It's not clear how consensual this was, but only he's punished, not her, and she follows him. Enlil was walking in the Ki Ur. As Enlil was going about in the Ki Ur, the fifty great gods and the seven gods who decide destinies had Enlil arrested in the Ki Ur. Enlil, the ritually impure, left the city. Enlil, in accordance with what had been decided, went away. Enlil went, and Enlil followed. Enlil spoke to the man at the city gate. City gatekeeper, keeper of the barrier, porter, keeper of the holy barrier. When your lady Enlil comes, if she asks after me, don't tell her where I am. Enlil addressed the city gatekeeper. City gatekeeper, keeper of the barrier, porter, keeper of the holy barrier. When did your lord Enlil go by? She spoke to him. So Enlil has apparently disguised himself as a gatekeeper. This is a fun little shtick where, you know, he has sex with her and then he disguises himself as his various employees and then tries to have sex with her. And she's like, okay, but, I, but I'm currently pregnant with Enlil's child. Wait, wait. So she's getting gangbanged right now by like his servants? It's only him though. It's, it's yeah. him in disguise as various Yeah, it's as him in disguise. Servants. It's not clear how much of this Enlil understands. He's saying, oh, you know, I'm loyal to my lord, so I want his sperm to, like, succeed. May the gods see that my sperm fails to conceive a son. Again, it's not clear whether she knows this and she's playing along or whether he's actually fooling her. And, you know, again, she thinks that she's cheating on him with all of his various servants. I don't know. It's just fun. It's like the Mozart opera, Cosi Bantute. It reminds me of some of the, like, sneaky shit that the Greek gods would do. Yeah, no, exactly. Well, for her sake, I hope she knows. Otherwise, you just, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a, a more, a much more and a less creepy way to interpret the story. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Enlil answered as a city gatekeeper. My lord has not talked with me at all, O loveliest one. So Ninlil says, I will make clear my aim and explain my intent. You can fill my womb once it is empty. Enlil, lord of all the land, has had sex with me. Just as Enlil is your lord. So am I your lady. The seed of your lord, the bright seed, is in my womb. The seed of Suen, the bright seed, is in my womb. So obviously the gatekeeper should want Enlil's son to be born. Obviously this is his duty to his unborn prince. So Enlil, in disguise as the gatekeeper, says, My master's seed can go up to the heavens. Let my seed go downward. Let my seed go downward instead of my master's seed. Enlil, as the city gatekeeper, got her to lie down in the chamber. He kissed her there. At this one intercourse, at this one kissing, he poured the seed of Nergal Meshlamta Ea into her womb. So we met Nergal back in season one. He is the god of death and disease, and he married Eresh Kigal, the goddess of the underworld. 
So Enlil and Ninlil go to the Eid Kura, the river of the underworld, comparable to the Greek river Styx. Enlil approached a man of the Eid Kura, the man-eating river. My man of the Eid Kura, the man-eating river, when your lady Nilel comes, if she asks after me, don't you tell her where I am. So the same thing happens. He disguises himself as that guy and propositions Ninlil. She says he can fill her womb once it's empty, and he says, My master's seed can go up to the heavens. Let my seed go downward. Let my seed go downward instead of my master's seed. Oh, so she's having sex with someone else now? Wow. This happens three times, and each time they conceive a different, like, important Sumerian god. Oh, okay. The first time they conceive Nana, the moon god of Ur. Next time, Nergal, the god of death and disease. Uh-huh. Last time they conceive Ninazu, and the kind of underworld snake god. So all of them are bad gods. Well, they're all, you know, they're not evil gods. I mean, the first one is like a, you know, good god. Okay. And Nergal, he's like a god of misfortune, but he's not like evil. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I know that's, I know like looking at it through good or bad is a very like, you know, a probably more Judeo-Christian type of thing. Mm-hmm. I know with like the Greek gods and stuff like that, it, they're not seen as like, even with ancient Egypt, they're, they're not seen as like good or bad. That's just. Like, that's the way of the universe. Right. Yeah. And I don't know. I just think it's interesting that, because they have sex on canals, they have sex at the city gate. Oh, and also the river, you know, the river of the underworld. So in all cases, they're having sex on this kind of liminal boundary between two realms, I guess. Oh, yeah. That's really good. In in all cases, they conceive a god that is, you know, a god of the underworld and or a god of crossing between boundaries, whether that's life and death or like, you know, the moon crossing across the sky. That's cool. That's really like a very fascinating parallelism that's what we call literature. At this one intercourse, at this one kissing, he poured into her womb the seed of Ninazu, the king who stretches measuring lines over the fields. So we've looked at Ninazu briefly. He is a snake god related to the underworld and the father of Ningishzida. He's also the patron god of Eshnuna in a later period of history. So the same thing happens when Enlil meets a ferryman whose name is written with the signs C-Lu-Igi. Again, Enlil disguises himself, they have sex, etc., this time they conceive Enbi Lulu, the inspector of canals. Then this myth ends with praise to Enki. You are Lord. You are King. You are Supreme Lord. You are a powerful Lord. Lord who makes flax grow. Lord who makes barley grow. You are Lord of heaven. Lord of plenty. Lord of the earth. You are Lord of the earth. Lord plenty. Lord of heaven. Enlil in heaven. Enlil is King. Lord whose pronouncements cannot be altered at all. His primordial utterances will not be changed. For the praise spoken for Ninlil, the mother, praise be to the great mountain, Father Enlil. So, last time I said that Abu Salabik wasn't one of the more famous Sumerian cities, but today we're visiting one of those cities. Nippur, which the Sumerians called Nibru, was a city on the main branch of the Euphrates, right in the middle of the Alluvium. Its patron god was Enlil, the Sumerian god of kingship, who ruled over the other gods from his temple household in Nippur, with his wife Ninlil and his son Ninurta. Today, we'll focus on the Phara period, or the 2500s BCE, around the same time as the first literary texts at Shurpak, which is just downriver from Nippur, and Abu Salabik, which is just upriver. I mentioned Nippur's location because it may be the primary reason for the city's importance. It sat on the border between the two regions of the Alluvium, between the Semitic-speaking floodplains in the north and the Siberian-speaking delta plains in the south. The north-south trade route, running parallel to the Euphrates River and connecting the delta with the Anatolian highlands, intersected at Nippur with an east-west route running to Susa. In later periods, Nippur will emerge as a kind of religious capital of the Alluvium, playing a comparable role to that of the medieval Vatican. 
That is, as a city with a religious authority recognized by rival heads of state, itself either formally neutral or formally allied with the most powerful kingdom. In other words, unlike Kish or Ur or Lagash, we'll never hear about a Nippur empire or the foreign campaigns of a powerful royal dynasty of Nippur. Instead, the power of Nippur was the power of Enlil, the god of kingship, and his eternal divine authority to recognize the earthly political authority of the most powerful kingdom of the day. The triumphant kings of Lagash, and then Unug, and then Agade, and then the far northeastern highlands, and then Lagash again, and so on, would all make their pilgrimages to the Akur, the house of the mountain, which is Enlil's temple complex, to pay homage and to render tribute to the king of heaven. That must be a very powerful temple then, with its priesthood. Yeah, no, exactly. The frustrating thing about this period is we don't actually have the temple from this period, probably because the later version of it, you know, when they were building the foundation, they completely leveled any remains of it. Did you say that happened the second time around when they, they completely stripped it to a foundation? Did you say they built it up twice? Yeah, well, they were constantly rebuilding the temples. I mean, A, because yeah. they're made of, like, unbaked mud bricks, so they fall apart fairly quickly. Yeah, okay. And also because every more powerful dynasty wants to build up a bigger and more impressive, you know, monumental mm. building. They did the same thing in ancient Egypt. Yeah, they would strip down, like, they would take shit from what other pharaohs built and strip it down and use it for their own stuff. No. Yeah. Which is why you have the massive King Tut that didn't belong to him, that belonged to his uh, dad's wife. Oh, really? The the golden one? Yep. It was, really? uh, yeah, it was, yeah, because, you know, his dad was, you know, the her- was the heretic pharaoh. Yeah, Akhenaten. Yeah, yeah. And then he died, and then, you know, his wife stepped in and put the son to the side, and so she had, you know, really cool, you know, death masks and whatnot. Since he died really quickly... You know, mm-hmm. and then suddenly, and she was, you know, the heretic pharaoh's wife, so they really want to desecrate her shit. So they stripped it, remodeled it for him, and slapped it on his body. Ooh, that makes sense. So did Nefertiti died first, right? Before yeah. King Tut? Okay. Yeah. Huh. Our earliest evidence of occupation comes from the early Ubayid period, around 5400 BCE. At this depth, so close to the water table, it's difficult for archaeologists to tell the difference between clay used for mud bricks and the ambient clay surrounding it in every direction. If there were any earlier buildings here, the groundwater has turned them back into wet mud. I'm currently rewriting the episodes on the Uruk period, and one of the things we'll talk about is that during the early and middle Uruk period, the Nippur and Adab area of the central alluvium was the site of the first large and dense urban population in the alluvium. It's between about 4,000 and 3,500-ish BC. If you're listening to this in the future, you already know that. By the late Uruk period, Nippur had grown to a modestly sized city of between 25 and 40 hectares, around the same size as Eridu during the early Uruk period at 40 hectares, and much less than the sprawling 250 hectare Unug metro area. Starting during the Jemdet Nasser period, around 3000 BCE, texts referred to Nippur as Enlil-ki, or the place of Enlil, suggesting that the city may have grown up around a temple household rather than the other way around. During the early and middle 3rd millennium BCE, Nippur may have been part of the kingdom of Kish and, or maybe, a city league at different times. The city seals from Unug, Jemdet Nasser, and Archaic Ur appear to include Nippur in a standardized list, which some scholars interpret as a league of Sumerian cities. Since both administrative text and seal impressions from Archaic Ur also named the city of Nippur, we can safely assume that this formal relationship between the two cities accompanied a fairly high volume of economic interaction. A literary text from around 2000 BCE credits King Enmei Baragesi of Kish, likely a real historical figure who appears in the Gilgamesh tradition, who we talked about back in the first Kish episode, with founding the Tumal temple to Enlil's wife Ninlil in Nippur, probably sometime during the early 2600s BCE. Nippur appears in the Farah lexical text, the list of geographic names, alongside Isin and Eresh, but no southern cities, indicating that it may have been part of the kingdom of Kish at one point. It makes an appearance in an administrative text from both Shurpak and Abu Salabik, 
as a member of the so-called Hexapolis of Shurapak, six cities grouped together for administrative purposes in that city's administrative tablets. Nippur was already integrated into the geopolitical order of Sumerian city-states by the time the Jemdet Nasser city seal signaled that such a thing existed, and it was integrated into the kingdom of Kish from the time of the first Kish tradition texts at Abu Salabik. It's unclear if these represent the same kind of relationship between cities. In other words, while this may suggest that Nippur passed between two different rival spheres of political power, its relationship with Kish may have coexisted with its relationship to the other Sumerian cities. Again, it's possible that the so-called city league was for religious purposes and not political purposes. So, after all, as I've said, Nippur had no political power of its own. So we'll come back to Enlil's temple complex, Enlil, of course, being the city god of Nippur. More important to archaeologists of the early dynastic, however, is the nearby household of Inanna, which was occupied continuously for over 3,000 years, from the late Uruk period until the late Parthian period, around 100 CE. The temple's proper name refers to a myth about the founding of Nippur. In the Sumerian text, the Song of the Ho, which we haven't covered yet, the god Enlil drives a farming tool into the ground, and humanity shoots up from the soil like fresh grain. To honor this moment of creation, these grateful mortals build a temple to Inanna on the spot and name it Uzumu'a, the place where flesh sprouted forth. Its founding during the late Uruk period probably reflects some kind of relationship with the powerful and populous city of Unug and its patron goddess of Inanna. However, this building may not have been a temple yet. The oldest layers contain materials related to daily domestic life rather than the business of an institutional household complex. By the beginning of the early dynastic period, that's level 12, around 2900 BCE, the building had grown larger with a more orderly arrangement of rooms and courtyards, but it still had none of the characteristics of a Mesopotamian temple. So our first step today is the next level up, that's level 11 of this Inanna temple. We're in the early dynastic 1 period, likely in the 2800s BC. By this point, the temple has grown to 500 square meters, built of characteristically early dynastic plano-convex bricks. The house features a central courtyard, like both private and institutional houses during this period, as well as smaller courtyards on either side. We still don't see the altar and offering table that characterize Mesopotamian temples, including later periods here at this temple. Like the previous level, the pottery shows strong connections with the lower Diala region. 43 clay ceilings survive from early dynastic one levels of the Inanna temple, preserving impressions from 13 different seals. All but one of these are from level nine, the first version of this building that was definitely a temple. In style, composition, and iconography, these seals strongly resemble those from archaic Ur. Similarly, two seals featuring animal contest scenes parallel those from contemporary periods at Shurpak. So so that all but one of those cylinder seals are from level 9, the first temple. So we're looking at that one exception, the earliest cylinder seal known from early dynastic Nippur. This seal is divided into two registers without a clear visual delineation between them. On the top, a kneeling woman plays a bullhead lyre, which we'll look at in the next episode on Ur. To her right, someone plays a drum and holds up an oval-shaped object, which may be cymbals or a drum, but it's most likely a tambourine, as it appears on an early dynastic one scarlet ware pot from the lower Diala. On the bottom, several people face each other and hold up goblets. So both registers depict a single banquet scene. The musicians are larger, possibly because the scene was meant to emphasize their performance. As it happens, we can confirm the date of the ceiling in four different ways. Of course, as I mentioned, we have the specific level of the temple where it was found, and the artistic style, both of which point towards the date in the early dynastic one period, somewhere in the broad neighborhood of 2800 BCE. These two methods, combined with pottery and carbon dates from other sites, are usually all the data available to archaeologists. However, the seal cutter also depicted the same types of pottery in the banquet scene, the goblets held by the guests and the other serving dishes, that appear in early dynastic one levels of archaeological sites across the northern and central alluvium. In other words, not only does the style of the art point to the early dynastic one period, but the art itself depicts early dynastic one styles of pottery. I mentioned four ways to date the seal, though, and this fourth way is probably the most watertight relative to the pottery chronology. This particular lump of clay was used to seal a jar with leather stretched over the mouth, secured by a cord. Of course, both the leather and the cord have decayed, 
The clay preserves the impression of not only these organic materials, but also the external decorations of the jar that it was used to seal. And these decorations are also characteristic of early dynastic one pottery. So this is not the first depiction we have of a banquet scene. One cylinder seal from late Uruk, Trogamish, depicts an ensemble playing for a seated woman being served by an attendant. And about 300 years later, in the royal tombs of Ur, we see another banquet depicted on the side of a bullhead liar. So like I said, level 9 is the first version of this building identifiable as a temple, around 2700 BCE or so. A set of central rooms in the same spot as a later sanctuary receive an extra thick coat of mud plaster, likely as a form of monumental decoration. Altars, benches, and offering tables provide the necessary installations for early dynastic religious ritual. But we're not here to stay. At some point, a team of workers knocked down the walls of this level 9 temple, leveled them to their foundations, and built a low mud brick platform on top. On top of this platform, 14 meters wide by at least 40 meters long, was level 8 of the Inanna Temple. Like public buildings since the Ubayid period, this temple sat on a northwest-southeast axis. The main entrance of the northwestern end led to a series of open courtyards, small rooms, and ultimately a large porticoed court lined by mud brick columns. At the core of this temple complex stood two sanctuaries. We have a few inscribed stone vessels and a door plaque from this period, but none are complete enough to tell us which god they're dedicated to. So the main plan of the sanctuary area is unique, not least because there are two sanctuaries instead of the standard one. One of these has a standard bent axis plan, like most other temples from this period. However, the other temple has a straight axis plan. Fragments of wall paintings in the debris show that at least part of the second sanctuary was painted. Although we can't reconstruct the scene, it appeared to have two registers separated by a diamond pattern. This period sees an increase in temple offerings, including beads, shells, cylinder seals, and amulets, especially in the shape of four-legged animals. We also see our first written language at the temple, including Inanna's name on a door plaque depicting a banquet scene, which we'll talk about. So I mentioned that there are two sanctuaries in this complex. It's probably a fair guess that at least one of them was dedicated to Inanna, but why are there two of them, and why are they built differently? As we'll see, one of the votive inscriptions in this temple was dedicated not to Inanna, but to Ninsar, a fairly well-documented Sumerian goddess of craftsmanship and procreation. As you might remember, we've read several creation myths where a mother goddess creates humans out of clay as if they were figurines. Sumerian literature also frequently uses pottery as a metaphor for the womb. This goddess's name was read either Ninsar, or Lady of the Garden Plot, or Ninmu. The Sumerian word mu, or mood, refers to growing or sprouting, or singing, and it appears in the name of the temple, Uzumu'a, the place where flesh sprouted forth. The sign sar was also used to write the word kiri, or orchard, and the verb sar, meaning to write, or to inscribe, which may have been connected to these votive inscriptions, which were chiseled into stone by the temple artisans in Nippur. So it's not certain that this is Ninsar's temple in Nippur. In a text called the Canonical Temple List, her temple is called the Eshuluhatumma, or the temple suitable for the cleansing ritual, but it's not clear where this is. She appears to have had a temple in Farah Shurupak and in Girsu from around 2400 BCE, but no text mentions a temple of Ninsar in Nippur until around 2100 BCE during the reign of Ur-Namu of Ur. Ninsar's titles include Nin Bulug, or Lady of the Chisel, and Nangar An-Ki-A, or Carpenter of Heaven and Heart. Both titles use chisel and carpenter interchangeably, so it could also be Nin Nangar, or Bulug An-Ki-A. Likewise, in later religious texts, the mother goddess is given the epithet Bulug Shaka, or Nangar Shaka, meaning chisel or carpenter of the womb. Several similar mother goddesses of crafting appear in the Farah period god lists from Shurpak and Abu Salabik, including Nin Zadim, Lady Stonecutter, and Nin Mug, Lady of the Chisel. Mug can also refer not only to the act of engraving, but also to female genitalia. So we can see a kind of Sumerian common sense here. You know, everyone knows that humans were made out of clay by the mother goddess in charge of reproduction. And since that creation was an act of skilled craftsmanship, that goddess is the patron god of potters, carpenters, and the stonecutters who chisel inscriptions into votive objects for the temple. 
This goddess had several names in Sumerian, Ninsar, Ninmu, Ninmug, and she also had several names in Akkadian, including Nintu, Mami, and Belit-ili, all of which appear in the Atrahasis. But she would keep her prominent position in the creation myth for the rest of the Bronze Age. Anyway, our focus today is on level 7b of the Inanna Temple, starting around 2600 BCE. By now, the building has grown to 85 by 25 meters, with a more complex internal division of the same general layout. This level is the earliest, with unambiguous references to Inanna, although her worship seems to be confined to one part of the building. The rest of the complex between the sanctuary was used for economic and craft production, wells, drains, ovens, and so on. We see a lot more inscribed objects from this period, that is, objects with writing on them, including statues, stone vessels, pegs, and door plaques. These are mostly found buried in hordes of offerings, probably interred in groups a long time after they were manufactured. If you wanted to dedicate an object to the temple, you had the option of getting an artisan to write your name on the surface of the object to show that you were dedicating it to the god. Inscribed mace heads, which are common elsewhere during this period, are notably absent from this level of the Inanna Temple. All it has are two uninscribed mace heads. However, the fact that these bases were overwhelmingly dedicated by men to male deities might explain why they're missing from this goddess's temple. One cylinder seal appears in residential context during the fire period of so-called early dynastic II style that is similar to seals from the 2600 BCE or so. This seal, carved from translucent green stone, depicts two horned, quote, masters of animals, end quote. One figure holds a goat by the horn, the other holds a bull by the beard. It appears the seal cutter didn't adequately sketch the scene out first, the guy with the goat is too big, crowding the guy with the bull into the corner. So we see about 60 statues and statue fragments from this period, including 18 complete or mostly complete females, 16 males, and one statue depicting a man and a woman standing together. It's not clear exactly when these statues were created. Like I said in the Diala episode, they likely stood for a long time before being buried, conceivably as early as the beginning of level 8, assuming that any statues left standing at the end of level 9 were buried in level 8. For what it's worth, they're stylistically similar to statues assigned to the early dynastic 2 period in the Diala, although as I've said, the early dynastic 2 period is entirely predicated on the artistic style of these statues. Anyway, six statues from this period are inscribed. Of these five, list just a name and a title, all male statues inscribed with male names, probably because the statue is meant to depict the faithful person dedicated to the temple. In other words, the statue is constantly praying to the god on the behalf of the person who dedicated it. The sixth statue depicts a seated woman with a name common in Farah texts. Her hairstyle and the tassels on her skirt were by then a couple of centuries out of date, suggesting that this statue is either particularly old or that the subject had a reason to be depicted wearing older styles. One broken statue is inscribed with the name of a Sangha of Enlil, or a high-level temple official. It's unclear whether this name should be read in Akkadian or Sumerian. In the former case, it would likely be pronounced Ide Ilum. In the latter, it would be the good Sumerian name, Lugal Hursang, meaning King of the Mountain Range. As we'll see with the inscribed bulls, two of these statues were incorporated into a temple installation for ritual libations, appearing with other objects in the foundation deposit of its drain. Similarly, four fragmentary, uninscribed female statues were found near one of the temple's entrances, on the bitumen pavement surrounding a well. This may suggest some connection between statues and liquids at this temple. So, several stone door plaques survive from level 7 of the Inanna Temple. These are rectangular stone plates with a round hole in the middle, which probably served as a locking mechanism for doors. A peg driven through the hole in the middle would have secured a cord or a hook, which would have pressed a plaque flat against a closed door. A few of these plaques were found fallen near doorways. So three door plaques from the Erdynastic Inanna Temple are inscribed, I already mentioned one from the previous level, which just says Inanna's name. There's also one from this current level, with an illegible inscription depicting another banquet scene. However, the best-preserved door plaque reads, To Ninsar, Luma, the chief stonecutter, dedicated this. Of course, we already talked about Ninsar. The top register of this plaque depicts yet another banquet scene. A seated man, maybe Luma, and a woman being served by an attendant. In the center, a woman plays a bullhead lyre with eight strings. So, of 285 stone vessels and fragments recovered from Nippur, about 100 were from this level about one-fourth of which were inscribed. 
Over half of these inscribed stone vessels were dedicated by women, one by the wife of the Insi, and two by a man and a woman together. Only six were dedicated by men alone. Unlike the latter, several vessels dedicated by women mention that woman's family relationship to another woman. This focus on lineal relationships between women, which is relatively unusual, especially in later periods in Mesopotamia, may have been a feature of the local worship of Inanna. Five stone vessels from this period were found incorporated into installations for libation rituals. Of the two with inscriptions, one was dedicated to Inanna by a sangha, or a temple official. The other was a beaker, also dedicated to Inanna, sunk into an area of the floor plastered with lime. Both installations hid the inscription from view, which indicates that these vessels might have been earlier votive objects, later repurposed as temple infrastructure. One large green stone base reads, To Inanna, Ilum Alsu, while acting as Sangha, dedicated this. Like I said, the name of the Sangha, I mentioned earlier, has been read in both Sumerian and Semitic, but this name is clearly Semitic, Ilum being the Akkadian word for God, which may also appear in the other guy's name. One stone bowl reads, To Inanna, for Ur-Ur, the field administrator, the son of Me-Akushu, his wife dedicated this. His name is written with the signs, or, or it's not clear how this sign was pronounced, but this name continued to be used until the end of the millennium. His job title, Sag Sug, or field administrator, was a common job title in third millennium texts. Another stone bowl reads, To Inanna, Munus Shume, the child of Ur Shubor, dedicated this. And we can't actually be sure about this donor's gender. After the early dynastic period, the word daughter was written with the gender-neutral term Dumu, and the sign Sal, pronounced Munus. So Sal is the same sign that has meant female since the late Uruk period. But this inscription just says Dumu, which only tells us that Munushume is the child of Ushibor, without designating gender. Of course, the word woman appears in the donor's personal name. Munushume might mean woman of the cypress tree. But as we'll see, a queen of Nippur had the name Aya Undu, or the father is pleasing to the people. Since all Sumerian names were short phrases, many of which referred to a god or to one of the child's parents, many female names contained male terms like father. So it's not impossible that a man might be named woman of the cypress tree perhaps in honor of a local goddess. We also find a steatite beaker with a scene carved in relief on the side. Archaeologists have found many similar carved vessels made of steatite or chlorite across a wide swath of Eurasia, from Mesopotamia to the Indus Valley to Central Asia, between about 2700 and 2000 BCE. They call this the intercultural style, or the giraffe style, named after a site in southeastern Iran, the area where these bowls probably originated. Because they were probably imported, already covered in elaborate relief decorations, it would have been difficult for local lapidaries to find somewhere to put a new inscription. As a result, we only have nine or ten of these intercultural bowls with cuneiform inscriptions. The one inscribed intercultural bowl from this level at the Inanna Temple depicts a contest scene between a coiled snake and a spotted cat, which are both common motifs in the style. The cat is either a leopard or a cheetah, both of which lived in the Iranian highlands at the time. The first line of the inscription is Inanna's name, with the sign for divine names. The second name is a combination of two signs, Pop and Noon. Pop can mean leader or man, father, or brother, and noon can mean prince or noble as a noun, rise up as a verb, or great or fine as an adjective. So is this one of Inanna's epithets? So does this inscription say great leader Inanna? The same sign combination appears in a contemporary Farah period text written in the Ud-Gal-Nun format I talked about in the Shurpak episode. Specifically, it appears as Ud-Pap-Nun, which is probably a way to write the personal name Pab-Kur-Gal, meaning the leader is a great mountain. By themselves, the signs Pap and Nun appear in personal names as early as the Jemdat Nasser period. For example, Pab Nune Inbud, the temple administrator of the Ib Kug. Pab Nune, which may be an abbreviation of the same name, receives barley in two other texts, as does a guy named Pab Nunra Aldum, who is essentially but the different temple to Inanna. All this is to say that this inscribed intercultural bowl was likely dedicated to Inanna by a guy named Pab Nune, which might have had a nickname. So just some miscellaneous inscriptions. We have a diorite peg with a bull's head on the end, inscribed Andasi the Sargal, and that Sar is written with the sign Sar. 
So Sargal is apparently a job title, likely related to Dubsar, or scribe, and Gabsar, meaning engraver. It's almost certainly related to the name of Ninsar. Andasi may have been a chief engraver, Gal meaning great or chief. A few other job titles mentioned in descriptions from the Inanna Temple include Dubsar, or scribe, Nubanda, or overseer, Damgar Gal, usually translated something like chief merchant, really more something like chief acquisitions agent, Simug, or smith, Shazu, or midwife, Im, or courier, Ugula, Musub, or chief herdsman, and Gal Zadim, or chief stonecutter. Other women mentioned in these inscriptions include Munus Kigal, or woman of the great land, that is the underworld, Gan Enlil, the wife of Utum, Bara Eni, the wife of Mashta, Me Ekita, the wife of Ud Ud, Khe Enlil, whose name means abundance of Enlil, her husband's name is damaged, Khe Ezen, means abundance of the festival, she is the daughter-in-law of Gunidu, and Khe Utu, the abundance of Utu, who is the wife of Pa Anu Kush. We also see a stone vase dedicated by, quote, the son of Lugal Anzu, for the life of his wife and child, end quote. So that is that on the Inanna Temple. So moving to the temple complex of Enlil, the patron god of Nippur, for thousands of years, the priest of the Akor, or the House of the Mountain, would crown kings and emperors of Mesopotamia in the name of the god of kingship. Likewise, in the surviving Sumerian literature, Enlil ruled as king over the other gods from his palace household in Nippur, nearby the households of his wife Dinlil and his son Nanurta, as I mentioned. However, we don't have a temple to Enlil from this period. We do have a series of temples from around 2200 BCE onwards, beginning with the monumental project begun under Naram-Sin of Agade and continued under his son, Sharkali Shari. The construction of that temple is actually extremely well-documented. We'll get there eventually. It's likely that the foundation dug for this reconstruction obliterated all traces of whatever smaller temple stood on that site beforehand, but we can only speculate. We do have fragments of early dynastic stone vases with votive inscriptions to Enlil, but these were buried under a floor from 1,500 years later, making it hard to tell when they were first dedicated. During the Fari period, the temple household of Enlil was apparently controlled by a Sangha, which is literally Sumerian for head. I already mentioned the statue dedicated to Inanna by a Sangha of Enlil. I also mentioned the founding myth that linked Enlil with the temple of Inanna. This mythological relationship between the gods was almost certainly based on some kind of relationship between the hierarchies of the two institutional households. The Danish scholar Ago Vestenholtz coined the phrase Mesopotamian Vatican to refer to the Ekur's role in legitimating Sargon of Agade and his dynasty. However, as a 2022 paper by Bernhard Schneider points out, the name could apply just as easily to Nippur as a whole, as successive dynasties of powerful kings built up the entire city into one big monumental space. Like the Vatican, it even had its own forecourt, adorned with statues of gods instead of saints. Nippur wasn't the only temple city that welcomed pilgrims from across the region. Besides Inanna's household in Unug, we've already talked about Enki's temple in Eridu, where people apparently kept leaving offerings even while the city was abandoned at the end of the Middle Uruk period. In later periods, the same would happen with the Ulmash Ishtar's temple in Agade, long after the collapse of the dynasty of Agade. That is, people would continue to make pilgrimages to it, even when there was no political reason to. In other words, these cities' roles as temple cities followed from their importance as regional administrative centers. Nippur was apparently unique in the sense, its primacy as a religious center was a result of its political neutrality, that is, the Akur's willingness to acquiesce to whichever king had already accumulated the most earthly power, rather, like I said, than the city's power in its own right. However, this primacy originated, and this is not at all clear, it resulted in an urban economy uniquely reliant on temple offerings. It's not difficult for us to imagine an economy based on tourism, not only the official business of making offerings to the temple, but also the semi-official businesses of selling food, beer, lodging, and various other comforts to anyone who could pay, and almost certainly a variety of less legitimate businesses. Slightly more remote to our modern experience is the role that foreign booty played in Nippur's economy. We have more evidence of this from the Sargonic period, but a similar phenomenon likely happened earlier on. A powerful king of some other city, crowned at the Akur, will go campaigning somewhere far away, usually in the Iranian highlands, and lavish the temple of Enlil with slaves and semi-precious stones. 
To be sure, some of this wealth was removed from the economy in the form of permanent temple offerings, like the intercultural bowl we looked at, which, like I said, probably came from southeastern Iran. However, much of the rest of this loot was further redistributed to shore up relations between whichever temple officials could get their hands on it and whoever they wanted to bribe. It's also worth underscoring the role of monumental construction in the local economy. Like I said, we only have evidence of this at the Acor from later periods, but we do know that the Inanna Temple was continuously rebuilt, as were others. Each reconstruction would require not only thousands of sun-dried bricks and hundreds of manual labors to make them and haul them and lay them and so on, but also masons and carpenters and people to mix the bitumen and sculptors to make the image of the god and so on. In other words, each temple was a colossal investment on the part of the royal power du jour in a large and complex labor force across a wide variety of skill levels and industries. Many workers could doubtless be conscripted from nearby, but there's lots of evidence that specialized artisans traveled from job to job as needed. These traveling artisans, like pilgrims, would have also needed food, beer, lodging, and so on. But unlike many pilgrims, they might have had more silver than the bare minimum. It's unclear how many slaves were brought to the Acor during the fire period. Certainly foreign campaigns took place on a smaller scale than during the later Sargonic period. But given the evidence that the early kings of Kish ruled over Nippur and campaigned in Elam, it's certainly not unlikely that the Acor found itself in charge of Iranian slaves from time to time. Chattel slavery never constituted a large part of the Mesopotamian economy. As far as we could tell, enslaved workers mostly performed domestic labor in elite households rather than large-scale productive labor as we would understand it. The vast majority of manual labor was done by teams of conscripted workers paid in regular rations of barley. So yes, they were forced to work and paid just enough to keep them alive, but they couldn't be bought or sold or separated from their family unless they fell into debt, which is a discussion for some other time. In other words, the vast majority of productive labor in Sumerian society was done by workers supported by their traditional family networks which is why manual workers didn't need to be paid in wool and oil and leather and stone and all the other materials they would need to live their lives. Presumably, their families were taking care of that stuff, as long as the breadwinner was coming home with grain. So at the same time, any large urban society necessarily had people outside those traditional family networks, the proverbial widows and orphans who appear in political rhetoric from pre-Sargonic Lagash to the Hebrew Bible, those who can't work and have no working-age adults to care for them. Temple complexes likely took these people in and provided for them, and the Acor was likely no exception. In fact, it's a particularly large and influential temple and may have taken in more than its peers elsewhere, maybe taking in widows from the same wars to produce the booty. Earlier, I followed Robert K. England's lead in talking about the working dependence of the late Uruk and Jemdet Nasser temples as slaves, but it's not clear that they were all enslaved. And as I said, slavery made up a much smaller part of the Mesopotamian economy than in later Athens or colonial America. Either way, though, the Acor likely fed a large population of workers, children, and the elderly, and it's unclear how many of them were enslaved. So early in the 20th century CE, Academics assumed that cities like Nippur were administered directly by the bureaucrats of their major temples, in this case the Sangha of Enlil that we mentioned, leading to the characterization of Sumer as a temple economy. We now know this isn't true. Nippur did have a municipal government, overseen by an NC, just like other cities. This NC was just smaller and less powerful than other cities had. This NC, or governor, appears to have acted as the head of the Eshu Mesha, the temple household of Enlil's son Nenurta, during the early dynastic, although the details are unclear. We have another intercultural bowl, this time a quote-unquote unprovenanced one, which usually means it was looted. The style is unique, and some cuneiform signs are deformed, which along with its unknown origin have led some scholars to declare it a modern forgery. However, the inscription may have been carved by a lapidary outside Mesopotamia, or just by one unfamiliar with cuneiform. In far period writing, the inscription says the bowl was, quote, dedicated to the high house of Engur for Engur, god of the totality of the sea land. A. Amangu, mother of Abzu Kidu, presented it, end quote. So Engur is thought to be an early way to write the name of Enki, patron god of the temple city of Eridu, and the name Abzu Kidu might honor Enki's temple in Eridu, the A. Abzu, since this bowl was originally assumed to be dedicated in Eridu. However, Abzu Kidu is also the name of an Enki of Nippur. He is identified by title in inscriptions from his wife, and one inscription has his name but no title, 
implying that he may have been important enough to name without further description, whereas skilled artisans would put their job title on the inscription. The only other inscription from the third millennium where a woman identifies herself as a mother is from 22nd century Lagash, where Eresh Inim Gina identifies herself as the mother of the current king of Lagash, Namahani. That makes it likely that this bull inscription at Nippur is also from a queen mother of sorts, dedicating a bull in her capacity as the mother of the NC of Nippur. So we have a bull with a rich mosaic on the outside, which is inscribed to Inanna, Aya Ung, the wife of Abzukidu, the NC of Nibru, dedicated this. So Aya Ung's name is short for Aya Ungdu, meaning the father is pleasing to the people. In older publications, this name was read Akalam. Another inscription names either the same queen or a different royal wife. Her name is damaged, but her mother's isn't. This later inscription reads, quote, Daughter of Amar Ishkur, the wife of Abzukidu, dedicated this, unquote. A different NC's wife dedicated an alabaster bowl to a different deity. Using an older translation, this reads, To Shub Kalama, Pa Kalam, the wife of, unquote. Shub Kalama may have been a different name for Inanna, or a minor deity also worshipped in Inanna's temple. The NC's name is damaged, but it starts with Namach, so it may be the same name as a later king, Namachani, of Lagash that I just mentioned. All this is to say that just like other Sumerian cities, Nippur had its own royal couple. It's unclear if they represented a dynasty, or if each NC was appointed by whichever king ruled Nippur at the time, or maybe chosen by the Temple of Enlil. However, the importance of the queen mother and the similarity between different royal wives' names suggest at least some kind of continuity between generations. Just like other heads of state, they were careful to be seen making offerings to the major temples, just as we'll see with the later queens of pre-Sargonic Lagash. So we're going to finish up today by looking at some burials. Augusta McMahon's 2006 publication summarizes excavations between 1989 and 1990 in a small domestic area of Nippur in a different part of town from the major temples, occupied continuously between the early dynastic and Sargonic periods. Most of these are single burials with a few double burials. Most graves are unlined pits outdoors in courtyards or open areas near houses, but three graves are under the floor of a particular room in the house. Almost everyone was buried with at least a jar and two bowls. These are kind of the standard bare minimum grave goods for a Sumerian society. Richer burials also had jewelry and vessels made of stone or metal. The skeletons themselves weren't in great shape. A high water table left them with extensive salt damage, and a planned analysis of these bones was cut short by the first Gulf War. That said, let's look at four of these burials. The dates are my own rough approximations, but man just reports pottery types. So around 2600 BCE, a 10-year-old child was buried with only a basalt grindstone rather than the usual pottery. This was unusual at Nippur, but known at Abu Salabik to the north, maybe associated with Semitic-speaking peoples to the north. Around 2400 BCE, an adult was buried with at least 28 conical bowls, kind of a similar design to the Uruk period beveled rim bowls. These bowls were found stacked upright, as was common both here and elsewhere, possibly as the dishes from a funeral feast. This grave also contained a spouted jar, an alabaster bowl, and cockle shells covered in green cosmetic paste. A little later, sometime in the 2300s BCE, we have a double burial. First, an adult died, and it was buried with a standard jar and two bowls, as well as a tool made from a donkey tibia. But before they were done filling in the pit, an infant died and was buried in the fill of the same grave, with baby-sized versions of the same jar and bowl. McMahon doesn't list the adult sex, but I think it's likely that this is a mother who died in childbirth, and her baby who died not long afterwards. Our last burial is from around 2300 BCE, likely around the beginning of the Sargonic Dynasty in Sumer. The body is buried in pieces, with no head and no grave goods. The torso is lying face down, so to speak, on top of the upper leg bones. The lower legs were buried nearby. This kind of disarticulated burial is extremely uncommon. With a few exceptions, like I tell Brock, Mesopotamians took great care to bury their loved ones intact. So was this person killed elsewhere and only recovered months later after they'd started to decompose and fall apart? The date of this interment may suggest that this person may have died in one of the many battles accompanying the beginning of Sargon's reign 
although this is far from certain. And that is that for Fire Period Nippur. So we're going to finish up today with a different text. This is called The Incantation of Ningirim. The tablet itself was looted, so it's hard to tell where it was from. Based on the writing itself, it probably dates to the Fara period, or the early dynastic 3A period. So this is an incantation that is a prayer in text form, and may have originally been intended to treat a health issue. In heaven, a wind arose. On earth, dust swirled. South wind rose, north wind rose, and dust storm arose. The body of a man arose. May Utu come to the man. May Nana come to the man. May the eloquent of brilliant speech, Enki, king, god of the Abzu, come to the man. They saw south wind, north wind, gale, dust storm, and the body of the man. My ma, god, the physician, came out. Incantation of Ningirim. Holy Inanna and Enlil were present, and saw in the high mountains, south wind, north wind, gale, dust storm, like fishes and birds, and the body of the man. His ma, god, the physician, came out. Incantation of Ningirim. Ningirim.